This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Louis Pasteur, born in France in 1822, was one of the great scientists of the 19th century, and his work still has a profound impact on our lives today. He was the first to manufacture a vaccine, tackling anthrax and then rabies, which led to the development of vaccines for other diseases. His research persuaded surgeons of the need for antiseptics to stop organisms in the air infecting open wounds. He discovered why wine, beer and milk can go off before they're ready to drink and found a way to preserve them, known as pasteurisation. By the time of his death in 1895, he was known as one of the founders of microbiology. He cut across disciplines. There were, he said, no such things as pure and applied science. There were only science and the application of science. With me to discuss the life and work of Louis Pasteur are Andrew Mendelssohn, reader in the School of History at Queen Mary University of London, Anne Hardy, honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Michael Warboys, emeritus professor in the History of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Manchester. Andrew Mendelssohn, Pasteur's background is important, as it is for most people, his interest. Can you tell us what part of France he grew up in, what he was like, and what he got out of it? Right. Well, normally I would actually say that in the history of science, the childhood background chapter, you can almost skip and you can move on to where they trained and, and so on. But I would say with Pasteur, we're looking at someone for whom the childhood background is actually, I would say, the key to the whole. And it is indeed in rural France, and it's a background in an agricultural uh, environment. Um, and uh, he went on to be a chemist. And what makes that interesting is that here is a figure uh, with whom we associate a revolution in medicine, who was not a medic and didn't come from a medical family the way, say, Lister did, um, who set up a whole area, a new area of biology, um, but was not a biologist, um, but came from a, a French rural environment in which chemical processes were productive. So his father was a tanner, and he grew up literally in a tannery and around a tannery in the winemaking area in the Jura Mountains uh, in the town of Arbois. And uh, so this meant that uh, to say that somebody uh, began their training in chemistry um, in the second half of the 19th century, you might think, well, okay, that what was important was synthetic chemistry and the and the, uh, the area of chemistry that gave us the modern chemical industry and so on. But he was growing up in an area of France in which there were old practical arts like tanning, winemaking, uh, that you could learn from. And they were complicated. Tanning is a very, well, so I've read, yes. tanning is very complicated as well as a good tanner. So he, did he learn about that? Did he help? Uh, he never uh, contributed to tanning, but he was in an environment in which you had exactly as you say, so complex processes of production that were not new. So they'd been around for centuries, if not thousands of years, right? Winemaking and so on. But that you could engage with, you could find problems to tackle within those areas and you could tinker with them and you above all could learn from them and I think that's really crucial for Pasteur. And you went from study to, to the workforce, the work face, time and time again. That is one of the yes. things that distinguishes him. The practical. Another thing is that we're told that in his childhood, going back to the childhood, yes. he didn't like school much so he went drawing and painting and fishing. How did he leap from there to become a chemist? That's right. Well, he, he loved to sit uh, in the garden of the tannery by the river apparently and he did indeed do watercolours and later in life he actually 
gave lectures at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in, in Paris uh, because he knew a lot about the chemistry of paint and so on uh, by that time. So he wasn't giving no, lectures. There's a bit of a come down. I want to be t- taught up on my paintings. And I said, no, we want to know the chemistry of paint. Get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had a strong aesthetic sense, which may have fed into the fact that the first area of chemistry he worked in was crystallography, uh, which we'll talk about probably uh, later. But um, And uh, he... Um, uh, he as you said he he never in a way he never left i mean he did he went to paris but he made paris work for agricultural france and he was always going back to uh, the field so to speak um, to the places where interesting interesting things were happening so field he set up field laboratories to study silkworm disease in the south of france and so on so he was in constant he was no ivory tower scientist who went to paris and that was it you know thank god to be out of the provinces or whatever he was always going back there and bringing his laboratory with him can you just uh, summarize for us why chemistry became so important to the way he studies his thought, his development? Occurred? Well, this could take us fi- quite far afield into the program. I suppose the most general way of putting it would be to say that um, chemistry, well, first of all, most industrial processes were chemistry, and chemistry itself grew out of pharmacy and metallurgy and, and all kinds of production processes in the 18th century. So there was always a relationship between, uh, there could be a relationship between the theoretical and the practical, which became a hallmark of, of, you could take it in one way or the other, but Pasteur always straddled the two. And I think that's also, was characteristic that chemistry as a field allowed him to do that very well. Thank you. Michael Warboys, he later had regrets over abandoning his early work as a chemist when he had visions, uh, not, I don't mean silly, no, mm-hmm. where he had a vision of what the what life might be like. Can you tell us what that vision was and then why he regretted abandoning it? The vision came from the work that he did for his PhD on crystallography. And that set up really two branches of of science, really. The first was the study of what's now called stereochemistry, which is the idea that you can have the same molecule, but you can have it in in, 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 in mirror image forms. One, like your, if you look at your hand, you have a left hand and a right hand. They're, they're, they're the same structure, but, but they're different. Um, and, and that's a basic um, asymmetry, left and right. And what he found in, the, in, his, in his work was that um, organic compounds, those produced by living organisms, um, tended to be, tended to be um, mainly left-handed, but also right-handed as well. And so he had this idea that asymmetry was the key to understanding asymmetry, life. Asymmetry. Yeah. Asymmetry was yeah. the key to understanding life. And, I mean, paradoxically, given his later work, where he, he, he he's now famed for um, defeating the idea of spontaneous generation, he was inspired early on in his career, in his career that he might actually be able to create life. So he... he, he, he he found some, he got some organic material, and he subjected it to heat, to magnetism, to electric currents, to actually see if he could, if he could create life. And 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 this, the notion that asymmetry was was the, was the key um, to life was important. And 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 there's a and there's a letter from his wife saying that that this could possibly make him the Galileo or Newton of biology. So you can see that there's there's a degree of ambition in the family um, very early on in his career. Can we push? Can you push? Can you develop that a bit further? Because it is fascinating. He did think that he that life was the, the most curious thing of all, and that there was he, he had found a key to it. Mm. Have I? Do you think he had? I mean, what do you think? Um, 
well, we, we now know that life is much more complicated than that. The molecular but there's a start. Somebody's got to start. And was it, yeah. was it a good well, starting well, place? If, if, if we go back to where he started from, um, his, his PhD was on crystallography, and he was investigating that um, through the way in which light would be refracted through through crystals. Um, certain, um, his, 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 his teachers were working on um, quartz, but he, he worked on, on organic um, materials. And um, going back to Andrew's point, the, the, the key organic material that he worked on was, was, was tartaric acid, which is a, which is a product of, of the wine industry. Um, and the sorts that, that, he, that he did his <coughs> primary investigations on um, were, the, were, were the sorts of tartaric, uh, of tartaric acid, sodium aluminium tartrate. Um, and so he and so the so he he, he was investigating these um, the, the, these crystals, um, and he he found that um, it was long been known that in some instances fermenting fluids become become clearer as, as, as they ferment, and this encouraged him to look to see if he could find a way in which um, microorganisms might be used to distinguish between left and right hand crystals, and if he could do that, um, then. Then, then that may be the way to pursue left-handed crystals and and, and take left-handed organs and take things forward. Can you? He had a great. Uh, you've already mm. said his wife said, well, mm. "This is it. He's, mm. he's up there with Galileo and Newton." Mm. Uh, he was an extraordinary confident man. How important was that particular uh, mm-hmm. confidence, self-confidence, <laughs> that enormous self-confidence to what he did? Well, the the idea of the, the key that um, the idea that symmetry is the key to life was was one of was, was he established as a principle, and throughout his career, he, he was famed really for two things. One was having quite strong principles that he wanted wanted to follow in in the spontaneous generation controversy, which we'll talk about later. The idea that only life can um, produce life, but on the other side, he, he was a great experimentalist. Um, experiment gov- um, gov- governed his whole his whole approach to the investigation of of, of chemistry and, and biology as well, and this was. As Andrew said, both in, in in the laboratory and in the field and in applied areas too, and a phen- and a phenomenal keeper of multiple well described, well written notebooks. notebooks. Yes, and Anne Hardy, what theories were for the what theories were there for the causes of disease before Pasteur came along? Well, there are three essentially. Um, we begin with contagion, which is the oldest of them, which is the idea that um, somebody with an infectious disease can communicate that communicate that disease to somebody else, uh, as in smallpox, as in bubonic plague. And the second idea that comes along in the 1830s, 1840, is the miasmic, miasma theory. That is, that the um, the, um, the the sm- smells and things given off by rotting organic matter can generate disease of their own accord. And finally, there is spontaneous generation, which was developed by Félix Alexandre Pouchet in, in the 1850s. And that was the, the idea that uh, Pasteur came to into such hot dispute with. Um, and so when he came on the scene as a, a, a youngish man getting on with it, these three were around. Which one did he, did he see? He obviously would know all about it. You know, he know the field very well, to put it mildly. Which one did he seize on as the one he would follow most closely? I, I, I don't really at this juncture. I, he, he, I don't think he'd formulated that idea quite so clearly. 
And he starts by engaging Pouchet on the subject of spontaneous generation, which we're going to talk about later. Well, let's talk about that, because you all okay. keep saying we'll talk about it later. <laughs> let, you know, I, I'll control that, <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, uh, so let's talk about spontaneous generation. It's fascinating. Now, give us the battle lines there. Right. Well, Pouchet argued that um, matter could just organise itself to produce new beings, as it were. And Pasteur strongly disagreed with that. Um, and he had just was just deep enough into his fermentation studies that he was beginning to, to move his way towards a, a germ theory of infection. We don't put it like that just yet, but that's where he was going. And he knew that fermentation was caused by the intervention of microorganisms of some kind. And he famously engaged with Pouchet in debate and um, and effectively destroyed him. So nothing came of nothing as far as... Nothing, the, yes. I mean, the, his, question is, his question is... You Where know, was the something? And the something you thought was in the air. There were bodies in the air, yeah. just around the place. Yes. I mean, the he air had, we breathe had he, things in it which made other things yes, happen. There are yeasts. And so microorganisms yes. were effective uh, yeah. in, in, in causing life. There are yeast spores, for and example. And causing in death the as well because yes. they broke yes. things up. Um, how did Edward Jenner's work on smallpox uh, play into this? Okay. Jenner is important because he is, in fact, the first person to produce a vaccine. Um, this, is, this is about 50 years before. Right? This is the 1790s, yeah. yes. And smallpox, as we hope we all know, was a very unpleasant and deadly disease. It occurred in several different forms. It could be very mild or it could be very severe. And it... Uh, Edward Jenner was a country practitioner, but he was well connected to the English scientific world. He knew the, the Hunter brothers as great surgeons, and he was in communication with them. And he was had a GP practice in rural Gloucestershire, in a dairying area. And one of the things diseases that was present in the dairying area among the cows was something called cowpox. And this is a point at which uh, inoculation against smallpox had been introduced by Lady Mary Mont Wortley Montague early in the, from Turkey early in the 18th century. And by this time there were drives to inoculate people against smallpox. But to inoculate people against smallpox you have to give them a dose of the disease itself. Ideally you're giving them a mild case. That doesn't always happen. So Jenner was busy inoculating his flock in his parish and he came across cases where inoc the inoculation would not take. He, he could not get. He got a reaction, a sort of you know inflammation around the injection site, but it did not create a case of the disease. And over a number of years, he collected a whole series of these cases, sometimes involving whole families. And in all these cases, he discovered that these individuals had had cowpox first. So the milkmaid's complexion. So the milkmaid's yes. yeah, complexion, yeah. yeah. It was a reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, it usually affected their hands, and yeah. um, that was where they got the infection from. So if you got cowpox, it was a mild view, and you got an injection, you didn't get smoke. So he was on to that, which was, was a major step forward. Yeah. Andrew Mendelssohn, now, were you going to say something? No, sorry. Andrew, um, can we talk about Pasteur, unless you, you put your hand up once or twice, unless there's something <laughs> massive we've missed, let's move on. Um, what, what is his work on fermentation? Why was, that so on, what, why was that so important to the development of his ideas? 
in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, um, <clears throat> it gave him a way to move beyond uh, uh, what had come before. So one-off, relatively one-off experiments to show that um, yeasts were living things and caused uh, fermentation processes. Why is he choosing yeast? Uh, well, fermentation, uh, a fermentation, uh, fermentation processes were most uh, familiar to people through the things that I mentioned before, winemaking and, and the brewery. Um, and there was a lot that was well understood about them. And there was a scientist, let's say, in the 1830s who uh, showed that um, uh, in order for fermentation to happen, um, uh, or fermentation would not happen if you heated the air in which the fermentation, uh, to which the fermentation process was was exposed. And the reasoning was that this would be this was killing uh, whatever might be getting to your grape juice and turning it into wine that would have been alive. And the heat was killing uh, the life that was coming in, uh, the, the living things that were coming with the air to your your grape juice. Um, but that remained a kind of one-off experiment that showed that life was essential to fermentation processes, whereas what Pasteur did is to generalize from that. So he he showed um, that there was a microorganism associated with the souring of milk with a lactic fermentation, and then he showed uh, he took uh, he took this um, uh, uh, piecemeal world of fermentation processes, and he said, well, actually, there's probably a general principle here, and we can pursue it and find a whole series of microorganisms in relationship to processes that are both familiar to us and that we can understand chemically. And that generalization move, I would say, is... Uh, is that's how, that's how to think about what it meant to create something like microbiology rather than just, well, we work on fermentation or we work on these practical problems or we do a bit of chemistry here or uh, to create a, a, it's the generalizing from this or that phenomenon to a general principle. And in fact, he was ambitious. We talked before about how he, he had a, a theory of, of life that involved molecular asymmetry. Well, he had a theory of fermentation that he called, uh, it was, uh, fermentation is uh, la vie sans air, life without air, which is actually a highly, a, a, a principle at a much higher degree of generalization than, well, this bug causes souring of milk and that bug causes, gets us wine, right? So this was a higher order generalization he was always interested in. But where did he articulate that? In, I think it's chapter five, a book called Study on Beer. So he always published books that were practical within which he developed guiding ambitious theoretical programs which don't necessarily hold today but allowed him to go from working on breweries to creating a whole area of science it's that generalization move that's important michael michael Warboys, um we, we've talked about micro 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 how did first of all how did the, the technology of the time assist him i mean this is a technologically mm. driven age and the masses of things that are happening when people didn't know what, what, how, how the plague came about, how the bubonic plague about, this came about, it's partly because scientists of the statue of Pasteur are seeing these things because they've got instruments. Is that right? Can you develop that? Um, microscopy is certainly important, but it wasn't absolutely critical to Pasteur as it was later um, with Robert Koch and the development of bacteriology in Germany, where Koch, coming from a different tradition of botanical training was interested in the actual form of organisms. Pasteur was um, a chemist um, moving towards physiology and was more interested in, in, in the processes um, in, that, that microorganisms um, initiated and, 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 and sustained. So 
his main tools, I mean, he, he did use microscopes, um, I and mean, crucially in, in, in the work on silkworms, um, where, um, and this goes back to the, to, to the question that you asked Anne about Pasteur's ideas on, on theories of disease um, very early on, when he was asked to investigate um, silkworm disease, which, which was devastating the, the industry in France, um, he worked on it for five years, and he explored a number of different ideas as, as to how it was how it was actually um, actually caused, um, and he came up with the, with some quite remarkable findings, and I think they they typify a lot of his later work. Um, he used the microscope to actually find that the um, that, that one of the diseases there wasn't one disease there were two diseases causing the problem. One of the diseases was was actually you, you could see the the corpuscles. I mean, he didn't necessarily call them microorganisms at that point. You could see the corpuscles actually in the eggs and in the larvae of the of, of the silkworm. Um, so, so he was he was using microscopes, and he tried to he tried to make microscopes available to the to, to the um, to the growers um, in the area to actually do this. The second the, the second disease was actually a form of um, um, silk. Silkworm diarrhea, I suppose, is what you call it. It's now recognised as a viral disease, but that was um, that, that was avoided by by um, good horticulture um, by making sure that the mulberry leaves weren't contaminated um, with disease, um, uh, with with, with um, the dust or whatever it was that was causing the disease. So he's using the microscope. He's using physiological methods um, he's actually ga- engaging with what what we would now call stakeholders. He's he's giving lectures to the um, to, to the mayors of these towns, etc. So he's, he's making use of a whole range of technologies to investigate. But as Andrew, Andrew pointed out uh, graphically about in Chapter 5 of a book mm-hmm. on beer, he comes up with something which mm-hmm. then becomes a, mm-hmm. a very important and mm-hmm. resonating and, and uh, continuing generalisation. Mm-hmm. And, and Hadi, he's a chemist. He becomes drawn into the study of animal diseases. Is he going, as it were, back, back, back to the childhood, back to what was around him, and saying these are real problems here? And I've got to, he, so, he solved the problem of the silkworm industry, so that nobody's in suspense about that. Um, and what, how did he get drawn into animal diseases? Uh, you're right. And the, the fermentation studies and silkworm diseases inspired him with a desire to do something about infectious disease, which, as we know, was a big problem in the 19th century, more than ever before, because of the growth of towns and industrialisation and so on. Um, and so he... he um, he's... Sorry, I've got, I got myself stuck here. Um, well, we're talking about... Yeah, he got drawn yeah, to animal, animal diseases. Animal diseases yeah. Well, he had to study animal diseases oh. because he was not a doctor. Mm. He's not qualified in medicine, and if he had attempted to... Um, study human diseases in humans, the French medical profession would have had it in for him in a big way. Oh, I see. I um, and in, fa- in fact, when he comes to administer vaccines, he never administers them himself. It's always a, medical, a medically qualified colleague who does it. So he has to go to animal diseases. But there's also an ethical component there, which he made clear at a congress in a meeting in Copenhagen in uh, 18, 1884, when he said quite clearly that um, although it is allowable, experimentation is allowable on animals, it is criminal on man. So there's a very clear understanding that, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil. But he went, uh, Andrew Mendelssohn, he went into, into the chicken problem. Chick- you, you would say so much. Yeah, I, mean, I think, I think by, by, by the time he works on anthrax... He, he, I was going to talk about anthrax. Yeah, he, I mean, he, well, he, he, 
given his success with beer and wine and silkworm, he's famous. He is, he is the go-to guy. Um, so, I mean, he, he is invited to work on some of the on, on these problems because of his because of his reputation. Mm. Um, I was coming to anthrax. Mm, what what mm. does he do there that's uh, that's important, Andrew? Uh, well, yeah, I'll come to anthrax as well. But I think trying to put all that together in the sense that, I mean, um, it was a it was a typical move not just for Pasteur but but for many people at the time to study animal diseases um, because you didn't have the problem of creating an animal model of a human disease. So never mind human experiment, but in order to work uh, experimentally on human diseases, you always had to figure out whether you could get something going in your laboratory that was a mouse or a guinea pig or a rabbit or whatever it was that you could use as a, as a, as a stand-in for a human being. But with an animal disease, you didn't have that problem because you were working anyways on an animal disease. And um, uh, he actually started uh, working on diseases of higher animals. Of course, he had, had work, worked on animal diseases when he worked on the silkworms, mm-hmm. but with higher animals by working on chickens. And that was a lot uh, cheaper than working on anthrax because cows and sheep were um, more expensive experimental objects than, than chickens. Um, so he was working on, on uh, uh, fowl cholera. Um, and it was also, it had a practical importance. And as Michael was saying, whenever he does this work, you shouldn't imagine it that he's off on his own saying, hmm, what am I going to do next? He's um, always communicating with the very vibrant world of French agriculture at the time, which is organized in societies and local academies and on which there is actually a, a, um, a, it's a buzzing world of publication, of investigation. So he's not the scientist arriving on the scene with a bunch of country bumpkins with their chickens. He is in a world that is already doing a lot of research on itself. But he comes with tools that they don't have, which is where the chemistry comes back in and, and the microscope. Um, so they don't, they don't have as much chemistry as he has. Um, Can you tell us about his, his, the impact he had from his work on anthrax? So, well, the first thing to say about anthrax would be that, that he sort of missed the boat in the sense that um, uh, uh, the year before he started to publish on anthrax, Robert Koch had published a paper. This is the German bacteriologist. Yes. So they're, this they're is more or less contemporaries and more or less rivals. Yes, so they're rivals, and but they come from two completely different backgrounds, which yeah. gets us back to, to Pasteur's childhood. We can come back to that maybe, but just quickly about anthrax. So... Um, a lot of people studied anthrax because under the microscope it was big and unmissable, whereas the proliferation of all kinds of other microbes under the mic- microscope was difficult to distinguish. But the anthrax rods were actually big and visible. So there was a lot of work on this. But Pas- uh, Koch uh, demonstrated that these inert, apparently inert rods actually had a life cycle so they, with a spore stage. And so he did, he showed that they were alive and, and they underwent division and so on. And so so when Pasteur got on the scene, most people would have said that the question of whether uh, these anthrax rods found in the blood of anthrax, de- animals dead of anthrax, are alive, and therefore we have a germ theory of anthrax, was pretty much uh, tied up. Um, but there were sort of a host of doubters, and, and so the beginnings of, of Pasteur's entree into anthrax were not um, all that important. What became important is when he began to manipulate the virulence um, of anthrax, which happened after he'd begun to do this with the uh, cultures. So we're talking about cultures in the lab, in, in, in glass dishes and, and in flasks, of the uh, chicken cholera or fowl cholera microbe. Um, so, so it's really at the stage of um, how can we uh, manipulate the pathogenic power 
of these microscopical creatures. You both, um, Michael, you both mentioned Koch. Can you just bring him more into play? K O C H. K O C H. Uh, yeah, the uh, German bacteriologist who had it went on a different line. The two of them actually make yeah. one, don't they? Make yeah. a whole in a way. Well, they, they, they wouldn't agree with too that. Too neat for they my own good, yeah. Um, yeah, Koch was a, um, a German public health doctor. Um, who trained in, in, in botany and um, as, as well as his uh, medical career. And in the 1870s, Koch developed, um, he developed bacteriology as we know it, which, which is using microscopy to identify specific organisms, um, using stains um, to, to, um, to make them easier to see in the microscope, to critically culturing organisms on agar plates, on flat plates. Pasteur was doing most of his culturing in, in tubes and one of the um, criticisms that, that the Koch school made of Pasteur was that um, his, his experimental technique just wasn't as effective and, and as clean um, as, as, their, as, as theirs were. So, so Koch's emphasis is much more on the, on, on, on the causes of disease. He's trying to, he's trying to find um, specific organisms that he can associate um, with diseases. He does it first with anthrax. He then does it with wound infection diseases. And then, and then in 1882, 1883, which is when Koch and Pasteur really begin to um, to, 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 to engage in controversy, um, he finds the tubercle bacillus um, and then and, and then the cholera. Um, um, the cholera bacillus in 1883 um, and interestingly with, with cholera um, by that point um, he actually goes to France to investigate a cholera outbreak in France that, that he's kind of when, when this starts as Andrew says in, in, in 1876 Koch is the unknown and Pasteur is already the, the, the European star of, of, of this emerging field of microbiology by 1882-1883 when they first start to lock horns Koch is the coming man um, and 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 and, it, and it's Cox bacteriology, which which effectively is 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 the one which goes on to um, um, to dominate. Um, and it, and if if you look at the lists of who discovered which microbes, most of them are in the Cox score. The Pasteur score um, scientists make, make make very few classical discoveries. Their work is mainly on on on, on vaccines and variable virulence. But the vaccines is is to put it mildly very important. Uh, massively and can we come to that how did Pasteur the problem of rabies was a strong and partly because that did (laughs) affect humans uh, and he tackled that can you tell us a little about that yes Um, I think it's important to remember the story Andy didn't tell earlier which is that Koch in uh, Pasteur in his childhood in the Jura had witnessed a rabid wolf attack in his home village and the only preventive for that kind of... I mean, it was known that that rabies was transmitted that way, through the bites. And the only preventive that was then possible was cauterisation with red-hot irons in the smithy. And the young pastor heard the cries of those people being cauterised, and it deeply traumatised him. So there's that memory there in his in his background. Um, what kick-starts him off is that there's a young veterinarian... Uh, called uh, um, Galtier, um, who was working on rabies at that time. And in 1879, he publishes a report in which he uh, says states that uh, rabbits are the um, ideal laboratory animal for experiment with uh, rabies. And also makes the suggestion that because rabies has a very long incubation period, in humans, between the bite and manifestation of symptoms, it can be a minimum of one to two months to a maximum of a year or more. 
And that, given that there is that symptomless period, it would be possible to develop a remedy which could be administered before the symptoms And so what did Pasteur do? So uh, Pasteur gets to work on rabies, and this involves... Uh, uh, kennels full of dogs, which make a lot of noise, and a lot of other animals, and it's a very hit and miss procedure. And the idea, the, the can we, can you just mm. mention? Sorry, you yeah. Know, I mean, what he what he does is he 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 uses in the laboratory. He tries to alter the virulence of the so rabies virus. This is where the word attenuation has attenuation. a place. Can yes. you explain to listeners what attenuation that is? is in some way weakening the power of of the organism, um, and Pasteur finds that there are various ways of doing this. Um, the classic way is, is, is to do it by exposure to air, which, which he thinks that the, the virus... I mean, people don't know at this stage that the virus is an intracellular parasite. Virus is a, is a term which had been used for a chemical poison, um, but now it's thought to be a kind of living organism, but no-one's actually seen this, and indeed nobody does see it until the 1930s, I think. Um, so he begins to play around with altering the virulence of this by exposure to oxygen by um, using antiseptics, by passing the virus through different laboratory animals. So if you pass it through rabbits, the virulence increases. If you pass it through monkeys, I think it diminishes. So he plays around with this. Um, and he then starts to develop protocols with dogs where you try to build up immunity by giving different gradation, by, by starting off with a weak, um, a very weak um, Virus and then building up to try to encourage immunity, but but he also he also tries other ways of doing it, um, and he he has some success with dogs, but it's but it's quite unpredictable. Um, rabies is actually quite a difficult disease to work on in the laboratory because the the infection is is, is complicated. Um, that, that it requires that the virus needs to get into the nerve fibers in order to be effective and so one of the techniques that he uses is to actually in, in, inoculate the virus into the brains of rabbits directly um, rather than r rather than give them rather than give them injections into the in, into in, into the blood Andrew <coughs> Andrew Mendelssohn oh, I just wanted to say that perhaps the the way to think about the bigger picture of this strange thing we're calling attenuation, which just means weakening of the virulence of microorganisms, would be to say that um, <clears throat> that far from the idea that um, the contributions of Pasteur and Koch and the others was to say that was to show that germs cause disease. Um, in Pasteur's case, it was to say, well, actually, germs cause disease under certain conditions, and under the other conditions, they don't. People, do, everybody doesn't get TB. Well, exactly. And whereas Koch was very, Koch came from a completely different tradition, not of, not just that he was a medic, but he came from a tradition of several centuries that focused on what you said before on contagion, and he was interested in establishing clear causal relationships and blocking them, blocking the germs. Whereas attenuation was how can we how can we use our artificial means in the lab to cultivate them and weaken them. But he began to manufacture vaccines in his laboratory. This was one of the great things that happened. How, how uh, quickly did that take on, these manufactured vaccines, and how effective were they? Well, certainly the, the the rabies vaccine, we have to, the rabies vaccine was, um, was took on, was replicated all over the place. So it was, uh, it was very quickly established in many places around the world. And you have to remember that the rabies vaccine had this uh, dramatic quality that it wasn't a prevention. It was something given to somebody who had already been bitten. 
So it's not like vaccine that we get today when we get as a child and will keep us from getting something later. The anthrax vaccine was quickly uh, 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 taken up around throughout France. A lot of statistics were kept. Um, and uh, so on the other hand, there then was a pretty long pause period before um, it was possible in medicine to to establish a whole array of, of vaccines. I would say there was an initial model that was very successful. Michael? I mean, one of the points that I think is, is, is worth saying, which is going back to the smallpox thing, is, is that Pasteur appropriated the term vaccine from Jenner mm. in order to um, legitimate that his practice was of the same type as, as Jenner has used. So we use the term vaccination today for all of these things, but it actually comes from vaccinia, which is cowpox. Um, so Pasteur did that. I think, I think the second thing to say is that by this time, I mean, the, the rabies thing was kind of, I mean, some people have argued, it was the first medical breakthrough. It, it's the first laboratory-based cure which actually kind of reaches, is, reaches the front pages of newspapers. Um, this was really big news in, in Paris. People flocked from all over the world. Um, people bitten in India got on a boat and, and travelled to and travelled to Paris to, to to take the cure. You know, that's whatever it's six six weeks because of the long incubation period. This the, this was the beginning of the thing that we see regularly in the papers today of of, of medical breakthroughs reaching the public. And and Hardy, how did this work influence ideas of cleanliness in hospitals? That that again goes back to the, to the fermentation story to begin with. I mean, the 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 great English surgeon Joseph Lister, or he was actually a Scot, um, was very interested and stimulated by Pasteur's ideas about fermentation. And one of the big problems in hospital practice at that time was wound infections, whether it's wounds, accident, wounds caused wound by accidents yeah, right. or, or operative wounds caused by surgery. So it's they came out of the wound or got into the wound. Yeah, I mean, mm. but, but what, what Pasteur had, had identified was that microorganisms are involved in processes of decay. And that's what Lister clocks onto that, that you know there all, is all this dying flesh around these wounds and he begins to use uh, antiseptic means he uses carbolic acid to to um, uh, cleanse his he opera- acknowledges his death to Pasteur very generously yes. throughout his life yeah, yeah he does yeah and from there he goes on and develops and, and ends up spraying his entire operating theatre with boracic acid to to to, to, to so you have and, up and then you go to, to kill aseps- any lingering sorry. germs so that you don't get asepsis, uh, yeah. sepsis and asepsis. And then the whole thing becomes, the whole surgery becomes aseptic. And, and then it goes on to develop and other surgeons take this up and take it to further extremes. So you get the lab coats and the rubber gloves and the masks and hats, caps by the end of the century. I mean, uh, Lister himself was practising in the old-fashioned way in, in his ordinary street clothes, but he his own operating coat, which was covered in bloodstains and microbes. Yeah. Yes. Andrew? I was just going to say the other way of tying uh, hospital cleanliness back to Pasteur would be to say that, of course, the problem we have today is resistant uh, strains, resistant microorganisms that don't aren't responding to our antibiotics. Um, and you could say that, that the perspective that Pasteur developed or his team or at the time um, already included attention to what he already saw as evolution, the evolution of, of microorganisms at the time. So... Um, uh, the, the point being that that um, that 
there are a lot of 19th century science and roots of both the problems and the possible solutions to those problems go way back. So yes, medical breakthroughs, but on the other hand, actually long continuities established at the time that should make us sometimes a bit wary about whether the solution that might serve us best is the one that's on the headlines and maybe it's actually an old idea that we need to think about again. Michael Warboys, past has been described by you as a very great experimentalist. Can you briefly tell us how he arrived at that? It was really the tradition of chemistry again. Chemists at that time were laboratory scientists. They were developing a whole range of, of technologies to in, investigate um, the um, the inorganic and organic compounds. Um, in, in the early work on crystallography, it, it was... Um, the um, po po polarimeter to do that. So he was a he was a great kind of he had all these tools and he took them from chemistry to to to, to the study of life. But he he was a tremendously hard worker and, and as you mentioned earlier he was an assiduous note taker um, and he was he, he was a very although he had although he had grand 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 grand, grand principles in terms of ideas. In, in the laboratory, he, he, he was quite pragmatic. He, he would change his mind quite quickly. Um, and if something didn't work, he, he, he would try something else. Um, and he also had a team of, mostly had a team of people working with him, which was partly goes back to his ambition. And he, he was quite good at, at, at gaining money for his research. He, he got support from the French state um, for the silkworm um, work. He, he was sponsored by the industry. So he, he, he was very good at, 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 at kind of organising research. He was very businesslike in the way he operated. Very briefly, because we're near the end. <clears throat> what, would you, what would you say his legacy was, Andrew? Oh, Pasteur's legacy. Uh, in a way, I'd say Pasteur's legacy was Pasteur. Louis Pasteur, <laughs> in the sense that he showed us a model for what one form of scientific life can be. So it's not academic, although he was academic, nor is it what we know today with the entrepreneur. Um, it was public. It was engaged with the practical problems of the day, but it was deeply theoretical and even cosmic in his engagement. I mean, he really wanted to show uh, uh, how uh, uh, microscopical beings actually made the whole cycle of life operate. So... Uh, so so he, we have to come yeah. to an end. Thank you, <coughs> thank you very much, uh, Andrew Mendelssohn, Michael Warboys, and Anne Hardy. Next week we'll be discussing the history of the idea of purgatory, where he said all souls of sinners are cleansed by fire. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I want to say, I want to put up Émile Roux as the um, unsung hero here because Pasteur actually pinched several of his ideas, his research. I mean, they, they had a, a... He was a, one of, a medical co-worker, and it was he who did the chicken cholera experiments and demonstrated that attenuated the, the attenuation feature. That was, that was Roux's work, which was hijacked by Pasteur's fan club um, as, as Pasteur's own work. And also did the crucial, um, made the crucial connection uh, in rabies between the injection of rabid material and its lodging in the spinal cord. And it was he who first thought of the procedure which eventually became established, which was the drying, taking the spinal cords of the rabbits and drying them out in different degrees. And this story comes from, from Pasteur's nephew, wasn't it, mm. who was a laboratory assistant, and he was one day putting a load of flasks into the hot cabinet. 
Anne Pasteur was passing by, and there was one that interested him, and he said, whose is that? And Loire said, it's Monsieur Rousse. And Pasteur took a look at it, and he took it away with him. And that jar contained a, a piece of rabbit spinal cord, which was desiccating. And Pasteur adapted that to his own use, and we go on. Do we blame or do we praise Pasteur for that? <laughs> Interestingly, the, the, the portrait, and I can't... I, the portrait which is always shown yeah. is of Pasteur looking at this rabbit brain, um, as if you know, kind of musing on it, as if this is this this is this is my great great this is my great great breakthrough. Yeah. Does well, that story bother the two of you? I mean, Man's story. Yes, I, it, sure. He, I think Rouge should have gotten more credit. On the other hand, um, what would he have done with it? And I mean, he was a, a reclusive um, guy who. Uh, yes, it probably wasn't fair. What the other thing to say is, of course, they did actually publish together. So yeah. um, mm -hmm. there were there were many co-authored papers, yeah. um, and there was, in, in a sense, I mean, Pasteur was um, not just sort of using people around him. He he created a form of collective work, of teamwork. I wonder if you could say the same about a lot of the great Renaissance paintings coming from well, the yeah. studios. <laughs> That's if right. you look closely at the best bits, are not by Michelangelo, it's by that little guy in the yeah. corner. He did yeah. all the borders. Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. observed the borders of the best painted bits of the painting. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I think that goes on in any collective, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to that. That's right. Yeah. Yes, and and he, he did cultivate this team over decades, and, um, and Rue eventually became the director of the Pasteur Institute for many, many years. Um, but I think that each the, the capacity of each of those people to contribute actually to something major um, did come back to what Pasteur set up for them. And in that sense, mm -hmm. you know, would Rue have existed if Pasteur hadn't rescued him from dropping out of medical school and said, "Hey, come come and work with me"? And 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 yes, there is a there <laughs> is a there is an important um, uh, uh, a point to make about credit. I, I agree with that. But I think you have to see it in the bigger picture. Yeah, and Rue swallowed his anger and his fury and continued working with Pasteur. Absolutely, so, you know, yeah, and um, and and you know, I mean, stayed devoted to the the maison, yeah, yeah. you know, throughout his life, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, um, one one thing we didn't get, one thing we didn't talk about was kind of Pasteur's personality, mm. and, and there was this kind of not not paradox, but there was there was great loyalty from his team, oh, yeah. but also he was he wasn't easy to get on with. I don't think he, I think the evidence is that he wasn't a people person, um, yeah. but but nonetheless. He he built good teams. He had yeah. good relations with them, um, and this and this, this was absolutely crucial well, um, can going we just forward. Stop there, but if you're not a good people person, okay. you built good teams, you <laughs> had good relations. I mean, any normal sense of the yeah. word being a people person, yeah. the absurdity of saying I'm not a people person, yeah. one of the stupidest phrases that's now circulating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I stupid. used it. But yours, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the quotations yeah. as you said it, yeah. and, but yeah, he seems a pretty good people person. It, Put well, a team together, keep them going, and and they all worked on something very important. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a huge devotion. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, they could see how important the project was. Yeah. Well, so was you know, towards the end, he, he got a, he had a big stroke in his late forties, right. mm. major stroke oh. down the left side. Then oh. he had another stroke a bit later. Oh. He lost three of his five children. Right. There was things going on to stop him being a people person. No, no, I mean, I mean the, <laughs> the point the point was that he was that, that he was ambitious. He was confident. Um, he would regularly take on his critics. Um, I mean, he was. He, he wanted to defend his priority in in, in lots of in, in lots of cases. Um, he, he he was driven. Perhaps that, if that's another uh, term term I shouldn't be using. 
Um, but, but what you're saying, really, which is very, which is very interesting, is, is the continuities of science. When you're earlier, yeah. Jenner does this, and therefore he takes up the baton. Yes. All the scientists I've talked to say, well, that's the way it is. Well, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, I think uh, one, could add, on, sorry. one could add to that and say that <clears throat> uh, if you think about uh, what the kind of medical breakthroughs of the 20th century that really affect everybody's lives from childhood on, um, although there are problems now, uh, vaccines and antibiotics, right? Um, penicillin, so to speak, and and vaccines. And those are, um, even though we live in this world in which we expect things to come from, you know, yesterday, from today's news, actually, those are 19th century science, really. And they go back, they don't all go back. The point is not to say, oh, it all goes back to the genius of Pasteur. That's not really the point at all. But the point is to say there was a very productive relationship uh, between the practical arts, fermentation, uh, chemistry, um, and Pasteur, I think of as a kind of, of lens, a powerful magnifying lens that focused all these resources <clears throat> and, and, and forces that he had around him on these problems. And he, he, he did. I mean, he certainly was. He certainly, I mean, driven is a, a word that one, one can use. I mean, he was, he was, he lived this science all the time, but he did it very in a very collective way at the same time that that glory t did tend to focus on him i mean his he was a, he, he and his wife were a team the pictures that show the research at the silkworm sites down in the south of france she 's sitting there with him and and so he he was he worked together with people in in those ways that 's coming back like, we keep coming back to Pasteur we want to keep talking about mm -hmm. uh, medicine and, and yeah, uh, actually but actually Trey's description as I said that we were supposed to talk about Pasteur yes. today so <laughs> We have our excuse in print in the Radio Times, so you can't you can't argue with that. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the the other great legacy thing, which is kind of is, is not necessarily Pasteur himself, is the Pasteur Institutes yeah. and the actual establishment of oh, yeah. medical research as we know it. Um, kind of you know the the expectation that new vaccines, cures for disease, greater understanding of disease will come from dedicated research institutes. Um, and and that, that 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 was a result of the of, of the success of rabies. When when I said medical breakthrough, I wanted to put it in inverted commas, um, because it's because these medical breakthroughs are kind of as we've said they're they're they're, they're, con they're continuous. They come from a continuity of work, but they are um, used by scientists and Pasteur is a good example as they become breakthroughs in order to attract public attention to attract funding. And and the Pasteur Institute was was a was was the major outcome of. In, in institutional terms, um, the um, Pasteur's work. And then very quickly, we have similar institutes in Germany, in Britain, in, in the States. And this is the way we now think about medical research. Well, it, it's, well you could say there are a number of models. One is the research university, mm. which was essentially a German invention with institutes of research devoted to particular subjects, which was very much imported into the United States and less so here until at a later stage. And then there is, of course, what we have today, there's the entrepreneurial science where and Pasteur was somebody who actually took out quite a few patents, but he did that. He, he never capitalized on them. So he never went into business. So his is a, is a third model between the more familiar ones of the research university, academic research, and the, uh, uh, the industrial or corporate or entrepreneurial way of pursuing research. And this was a, uh, the Pasteur was very much a, uh, a, a different, a, a third way of doing that, a public but also partly private subscription-funded way of doing research. 
Well, th the, the producer is hovering at the door with an offer that you're not allowed to refuse. You can refuse it if you want. Do you like tea or coffee or something from the flask? Maybe? Coffee, please. Coffee. There are many more science and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.